Welcome to the Packet Pushers Podcast. We are at HP Discover in Barcelona and found a bunch of other bloggers and Twitterers and kind of folks, and we thought we'd go around the table right away. There's like and a just big say, pile of them just lying around the place. Bloggers <laughs> all over the place. Loitering. Loitering. <laughs> Loitering. I was going to say with intent, but that would be so overstating it. <laughs> <laughs> they literally were over in the HP networking booth and we said, oh, people we know. Hi, come here. There's microphones. You're going to talk now. Oh, okay. We'll call that a show. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's very professional. You have yeah. no idea. Yeah. So, so we've got uh, John, Mr. Tug. Say hi. Introduce yourself. Hey, John Herbert. Uh, Mr. Tug's on Twitter, and you can find me on uh, LameJournal.com if oh, you yes. like that kind of thing. Yes, with with the coolest video intro we saw. <laughs> you like that <laughs> lately? <laughs> he, he did. <laughs> John did this intro on uh, on YouTube for a, for a video that he, he put out. The intro is a uh, lame journal. And it's, but it's all just his voice doing the sound effects. It's absolutely priceless. You got to go see tat. that. <laughs> Tom Hollingsworth is here. Hi, it's good to be back. Yeah, and your front. Oh well, yeah, you got the front comes with the back. There's not really anything I can do That's about a shame, that. Shame, really, don't you think? It's kind of <laughs> the insertable back and front. The back is so much better. <laughs> <laughs> the whole world knows that. Tell us your Twitter handle. No, don't worry about it. Well, yeah, for those of you, like the three of you who are listening that have never heard from me before, I'm Tom Hollingsworth. You can find me, uh, Twitter handle is Networking Nerd, and my blog is NetworkingNerd.net. And speaking of fronts that are glorious to behold. (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. (laughs) Uh, He was going to Chris. (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. Uh, This is Amy Arnold, and I'm Amy Engineer on Twitter, and it's good to be hanging out with you guys again. Yeah, it's good to have you back. And I hear you know something about voice. A a little something about voice, but Greg just twitched a little, so... (laughs) (laughs) And someone else who knows something about voice... Q931, Q931, recovering. (laughs) Um, Chris Young, I work for HP, this is not that. So, uh, at NetmanChris on Twitter, and actually blogging at controlissues.com. Net with a K, not a C, because I have them. Isn't it one of those things where you regret using the K now? Well, I it probably seemed so cool at the time. I couldn't get the C. Yeah. And plus, I'm Canadian. We use U's too, so <laughs> just kind of wherever. Right. And I'm Greg Crow. I'm sorry. You can find me on the Twitter is at EtherealMind and on my blog at EtherealMind.com. You've probably heard me before. And Ethan Banks, of course, you guys know me at EC Banks, EthanCBanks.com. So, Amy. Yes, sir. How's things in the voice world? Because I've noticed you've been oh. tweeting and talking about them again. I have been getting back to my roots and doing voice upgrades, which are as much fun as I remember them being. <laughs> now, voice upgrades, does that mean people talk better when you're done? Absolutely. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's magical when I do them. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. It did take a little longer than expected, but um, yeah, I got it done. Um, it, so I what, remember. less than, like more than a week? Um, it was Like a, a normal voice upgrade normally takes like about a month out of my life. You might be doing it wrong. Yeah, I'm doing it right. I don't do them at all anymore. <laughs> well, maybe because it took you a week. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it's all my fault now. Of course. <laughs> See, the funny thing well, is, never is I got fault. out of that world in 2005, and nothing seems to have changed. Yeah. We, we probably talked about it for three hours last night, and the rash actually came back just by osmosis. <laughs> awesome. This is my voice engineer's drink, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you've been having problems upgrading? Uh, it did take a little longer, um, yeah. and uh, everything went well, which is great, but when it's still a 19-hour upgrade, it, it seems long. Yeah. You get a bit twitchy at 19 hours, because you start thinking, how long will it take to roll it back if it all comes unstuck? Yes, we mm. did have that moment about uh, 3 a.m., where if this 
final server doesn't upgrade, then we have to roll everything back. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, it's a little scary. So yeah. you, do you, you still sacrifice the CCIE route switch program too? I don't know how. I mean, were you fully committed to trying to trying to do that, or just? I was, but and and still am. But I have to study and in off hours, and and I've got family commitments that keep me from being able to do Maybe. that. Yeah, that whole every evening study thing doesn't happen for me now, but it might, and you know, in the future. But I just keep working at it. And yeah. Keep yeah. learning. That's kind of the whole point to me is to keep learning and be a better engineer. So. Um, as long as I'm doing that, I feel okay about it. Yeah. But I don't have a lab day scheduled. I wish I could be a better engineer. Thanks. Thanks. No, 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 really, thanks. My, my chuckle was, <laughs> Greg, how could you possibly be a better engineer? You're so amazing already. How was that? Was that good recovery? I, I, I'm feeling appeased. I'm impressed. <laughs> this message brought to you by EtherealMind.com. <laughs> I thought I was the one in marketing. <laughs> so Tom, Blended you, virtual reality. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, you've been following uh, uh, Mr. Foskett around the nation and, uh, and the world in, in some cases, I suppose. Yes. And, yes. and how, does the learning never stop? Learning never stops. I've, I've learned so much about wireless and storage and virtualization, it's, it's almost like I've forgotten everything I know about networking. So that's actually a serious question that I had for you. You're exposed to all that stuff. Um, where you came from the networking background. Mm -hmm. Tell me how the worlds are converging the way you see it. It, it, It's actually fascinating to see that some of the things that that we've taken for granted in networking for years are are big, important things to folks in the storage world. For instance, QoS. Um, I had to explain QoS, uh, things like low latency queuing and, and priority queuing, to a person that I consider to be one of the greatest storage minds out there. And it's not because he's not smart. It's just that they have never had that kind of idea uh, in their world that you mean I can put some workloads in front of others? And what happens? You mean because they're from a fiber channel background where that's, those aren't the concerns? Uh, in a manner of speaking, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that we do when we look at QoS is, okay, well, when congestion happens, how can we alleviate it? And obviously the, the first thing is, well, let's start dropping packets. Well, in storage world, you, you get to drop nothing. Because a drop packet is bad data. It's, it's gone forever. And when you look at storage congestion and things like the noisy neighbor problem where you have uh, one spindle that can completely drop in an entire array because it's, it's constantly writing, how, how, do you, how do you fix that? Well, you, you set aside certain assurance levels and things like that. But now that we're starting to get into the world that, that uh, say, Coho Data that with their SDN platforms are starting to play in, you can seriously overload a system by throwing enough data at it. Yeah. And how do we prevent that from happening? How do we, you know, um, normalize it, I guess would be a good way to put it. Well, IP storage is growing too. Oh, yes. So what we're seeing is less of the fiber channel and more of the IP storage. I'm seeing a much greater take up of iSCSI and NFS. Yes. Um, Which is funny, really, because we, we kind of backed away from NFS like 15 years ago because it was insecure and slow. And then now yeah. everyone's putting NFS back out there as the one of the mounting place, mounting protocols of choice. I just find that bizarre. So several things have changed in 15 years. One, storage people are being forced into convergence, right? Mm-hmm. You can't afford to waste money on storage like they have done. Like Fiber Channel, the reason they've never had to do quas in Fiber Channel is that they've just over-engineered the switches to buggery. Sure. Right? Every switch was non-blocking. Well, 15 years ago, it wasn't practical to buy a non-blocking Ethernet switch. But in 2014, it's easy to buy a non-blocking Ethernet switch. You can buy them... You know, take a look over here at this this stand over here on the HP networking thing. 
chip, nearly every one of those products over there is non-blocking. But, you know, 10 years ago, you, it, you could buy an 8-port fiber channel switch that was non-blocking. I was going to say, it's hard to buy a non or a, a blocking switch nowadays. Yeah. It's actually yeah, hard to buy Yeah, subscribe, right? Yeah. Front panel to... Front yeah. panel. You know, so yeah. that's the first thing that changed. You could buy a non-blocking fiber channel switch where you didn't need ports. Yeah. Because it was non-blocking, right? Um, and the other thing, too, is that software has gotten much more reliable. Not all vendors have done good at software reliability, but, you know, the NFS stack over the years has been refined, but our ability to develop code for operating systems has increased. You know, I mean, even now, I could go... At home, I'm now learning how to write unit testing scripts, right? With free software that cost me nothing to write unit. So I'm using, you know, grunt scaffolding. I'm using the Yo scaffolding system to write unit tests in Phantom JS that simulate web testing against my JavaScript, right? At home, in my own time, on the weekends, right? So your ability to do that has just changed. These are the things that... That's why NFS and iSCSI suddenly became viable, because... Software development change. So I and I get the iSCSI yeah. move. I yeah. remain shocked at the NFS move. You think NFS, NFS is still better than how iSCSI? Many, for how long? Uh, no, it is because yeah. it's easy. It's got more features than iSCSI. iSCSI's in Mount Drive. We're done. I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> there's not yeah. a lot. Of that really, it's it's like ERGRP. It's pretty much plug and play, right? So anyway, mm, NFS has got a few like does some clustering stuff. And, yeah. and the funny thing is, I'm actually doing the same thing. I'm actually using Django and Selenium to do unit testing and functional testing yeah. for giggles. I'm turning into a vampire. I'm like, I'm, I'm not yeah. quite coder, but I'm, I got her to IPCC on purpose, and now I'm doing this. I'm like, yeah. what? These software tools didn't exist. I mean, the only people who got those software tools 10 years ago was a corporation that was willing to spend on a $5 million license. You know, from It's amazing what we've got access to yeah. free. Free. Yep. And the languages have come on so far as well. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, but it used to be pretty much, you know, if you were doing it yourself, it was in Perl. Yeah. And good luck finding the module you want on CPAD. Yeah. Now, I mean, especially with Python and Ruby and those kind of languages, you can find a module that does pretty much everything yep. you could probably want to do. Anybody Someone's done any done work? In, anybody done any work in Ceph? Like one of the distributed storage, IP storage systems that no, so instead of mounting LUNs. You actually just call objects, like distributed object stores? Oh, the, 2015 is the year of object storage. Yeah. It, it's the year of VDI and the year of network virtualization and like 15 other things. But but object storage... <laughs> well, Video conferencing. Actually, I know yeah. object storage is it's coming next year because someone, uh, Enrico Signoretti, wrote a blog post that said object storage is dead. Yeah. And so now, once you declare something dead, obviously it's going to be huge next year. But no, um, the, the idea that you're, you're, you, you stop worrying about LUNs and, and yeah. mount points and things like that, and you just start worrying about the data. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the whole driver for the cloud, is, is the ability to do object storage behind it. I think object storage is only about 10 years old, so it's probably got another 10 years before storage people catch up. Are you trying to say that storage people are a little behind? He's just saying what he said at Interops, storage people are retards. That's like, that is a quote. That is a quote. I still, they still gave me good ratings. They gave you fantastic were, were they, ratings. Were they the retards or the idiots? The whole we room were idiots. The storage people were I retards. We were the His ratings were off the charts. Fantastic yeah. stuff. Amazing presentation, by the way. Really enjoyed it. 
but, but actually, uh, one of the other things you brought up, we were talking about uh, the convergence between all of these uh, various uh, verticals that we deal with in Tech Field Day. One of the ones that amused me more than anything else was at the most recent wireless field day, where a lot of the wireless vendors are starting to get on the SDN train, yeah. and they're starting to talk about how awesome SDN is. And, and uh, I believe it was Sam Clemens and Blake Crony from the NSA Show podcast. They're like, so let me get this straight. You guys managed to separate the control and data planes from devices and centralized configuration management. You just figured this out a couple of years ago because we've been doing it since like aught seven. Yeah, and, yeah. and so, so they're they're completely unimpressed with the ideas behind <laughs> that part of SDN. So what are what are the wireless vendors doing with SDN then? Because there have been some announcements around it, and I agree with you. The model seems like that's they've been doing it for years. It, it, it's all application driven. So one of the things that that they're they're talking about doing with SDN is recognizing when applications do things they're not supposed to or reconfiguring network resources to provide things like QoS for Link. In fact, if you go out there, you, you can pretty much find that there's a use case for QoS for Link everywhere, including at HP Discover, because Link is probably the world's worst application when it comes to behaving on a network. Yeah. Um, uh, there, was a, there was a slide this morning that I tweeted about where I said that uh, yeah, HP networking claims that they can increase the, reduce the time it takes to configure QoS for Link by 80%. I'm like, how much does that application suck that you can help that much? Yeah. But, but it's all about creating an environment for applications that people use every day yeah. to behave themselves and you don't start having voice quality drops and, and stuff well, like that. The thing is, we've just recorded a podcast a few minutes ago with uh, Philippe Michelet. Michelet. And we were talking about how it's beyond just SDN controllers now. He's actually, so we were talking about their, let me just get the name of this out, virtual cloud networking product. Right. Which is yep, VCN. Yep. VCN, and that VCN product is now part of OpenStack. So it works with Neutron in OpenStack to orchestrate, but that same product also integrates with NSX. So you've now got your NSX controller doing the virtual part, and it now talks to the VCN um, in the underlay via the VAN controller, mm -hmm. so that when, SC when NSX does something, the VAN controller knows what's going on. So what the problem that I've got now is like, I was looking, thinking about this when we were talking to um, Sue Darte. Sue Dart. Sue Dart. I think it was just Dart. 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 In the section about this. They're going to get me hit. Routers and switches. Like so, they've HP's got a whole undiscovered class of enterprise branch routers that most people didn't know about. Right. And she, what she's she's saying, you know, we've got this branch routing and you've got switch ports and all that sort of stuff. And I'm thinking, yeah, but the first thing I do with a branch router these days is plug a Wi-Fi in. But the Wi-Fi is isolated off in this thing. It's untouchable. It's not integrated with my physical network at all. They just do stuff and then transport their packets. Well, I want my Wi-Fi network as part of my physical network, and if they don't make their controllers available to me, I'm going to put my SDN controller over their wi into their Wi-Fi and, and blast that. All that controller rubbish that they've got, that's legacy as far as I'm concerned. It needs to be in my SDN. Yeah, and that's what it's going to come down to. It's is, going to have to be federated. It is the policy constructs that we have today for things like wireless or security are eventually going to be integrated across the board. Wireless yeah. security, wired networking, they all have to have the same language yeah. so that programming a switch is no different than an access point, is no different than a firewall. Yeah, the, the idea language, of authenticating a wireless, yeah. a user to wireless but not to wired is like... When's the last time you guys configured 802.1x on a wired connection? Right. No, one, no one does that. No, no yeah. one does it. But 802.1x is, is a huge driver for... You're a freak. That's, yeah, that's different. It's a huge for driver fun. for wireless Braga. because it's a back-in authentication mechanism that uses radius. And, yeah. and, and the ideas sound there. But, you know, it's, it, you're right, Greg. It's the convergence of all of the orchestration and management pieces coming yes. together to allow... Federation. There's a sideways yeah. thing. You know, you're going to end up with a, you know, 
data center controller, you're going to end up with a WAN controller, you're going to have a Wi-Fi controller, you're going to have a Canvas controller, and they're all going to have to jitty chat to each other. In a single I, pane of glass. Oh, there we go. Ooh. Sorry, I, I think I'm, I'm mandated to say that at least once per episode. <laughs> so we need, a, we need a controller controller to integrate those three, really? Yeah. They're coming, by the way. I've actually had a presentation. The, the meta controller. The meta controller will run the one API. The API has the one that will talk to all the other controllers. All we'll ever have to learn is the one API, the one, and it will... Is, is that, is that an Does it know Kung Fu? <laughs> Sorry. I say because there can only be one. It's the there Highlander API. It's the Highlander API. There we go. That's even better. Yeah. This you can, you can right never over-abstract Highlander networks. There can be only <laughs> one. <laughs> so what I'm seeing a lot is talking to customers now is that we've always seen this kind of, and, and I will not even apologize for this, I hate wireless as a technology. I, I just don't like it. I, I hate squishy bags You're of Canadian, water. You can't not apologize. Walking around. Say you're sorry. Screwing with my design. It just, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and we're starting to see that people aren't, Wireless is not an overlay technology anymore. It's not something that, that is just kind of like you. I, I, don't, I don't want to point at anyone and blame them for this, but you, random person, you're the wireless engineer on purpose. For me, it's lower than voice. I did that. <laughs> and we can't think, wow, Amy does have a sparkle bat. It's real. Um, you can't think of wireless design without thinking in context of the rest of the network anymore. You know, the bandwidth that AC is driving, like you can have a single AP that's consuming the gig uplinks that you have. Like mm -hmm. you can't think of the way that we think about policy in a network. You can't just tunnel everything back to a centralized controller, drop an ACL on it, and go, bam, what security. The, yeah. Okay. So let me let, let me take a step left here because I want to expand on that idea. Did anybody see the Enbase T standard? Nobody's seen the Enbase T. So there's a standard which Cisco is uh, setting up. It's a pre-standard or an influencing body. Uh, and Cisco's trying to develop a 2.5 gig and a 5 gig over copper, right? right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Power over copper at 2.5 gig. Because if you think about it, and I've looked at it, nobody really wants to join in the fun, but that's okay. And uh, what we're trying to do is, um, I think, uh, the more I thought about it, I think, I think it's really just for Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. We don't really need 2.5 gigabit desktops or 5 gigabyte desktops, although we might as time goes by, but we really, really do for Wi-Fi. If you've got gigabit Wi-Fi up in the roof, You've got multiple gigabit streams coming in. Your Lots of hand waving. Copper coming down yeah. needs, and you all those Wi-Fi base stations in the enterprise roof are all powered off 90 watt PoE plus things, right? Yeah. So you well, need that. There, there actually. So there are APs out there right now that have two gig Ethernet ports in them to be able to supply 802.3 AF power mm -hmm. and gigabit connectivity because the switch infrastructure won't support AT or higher PoE yeah. plus. And uh, like Chris said, an a, a maxed out Wave 1 AP right now will hit close to the theoretical maximum for gigabit. When you get to Wave 2, where you're looking at 1.6 gigabit maximum sustained yeah. throughput, you're, you're going to over-rev that thing. So you're, you're saying there's a power draw requirement there going across those two lines as well? Yes, there can be. We could, what, what you run into, and, and HP actually did this at the, one of their last wireless field day presentations, if you're trying to configure an AP so that it runs off of AF or AT, there are some considerations you have to make. Well, for instance, if you're running the AP off of AF power, so 15.4 watts, you have to disable yep. processor cores, or you can't have max, you know, there's a, there's a maximum wattage you can have on the antennas, but you have to shut some other things off. 
Whereas if you know you have PoE Plus or AT power, you can provide you know more antennas. You can provide you know faster clocking on the processor so that you know those decisions get made, or you can even do security at the edge. But you have to make that trade off somewhere. Whereas if I know I can provide 30, 40, 50 watts of power to that AP through you know a, a better power standard that I know is compatible with everything else, then I don't have to make those design trade-offs. What we really need is fiber over, power over fiber. Can we get wireless power too? Yeah. <laughs> we need power over the air, we need wireless power. That's what I want. Well, you want, well, yeah, you want wireless power from the Wi-Fi to your phone. <laughs> so single, single mode hitting a very small solar panel attached to the AP, <laughs> yeah. mm. powering it real time, it could work. We well, got a startup. I just think I just think a pair of a pair. <laughs> it just needs to be a fiber optic connected to the Wi-Fi base station with a pair of coppers in it, you know, like Wi-Fi cable. <laughs> you know. mm, so it seems to me we have two choices. We can either develop a new M base D standard yep. or we can buy some extension ports. Am I, am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quite honestly, I'm thinking, why are we just not running? Well, the answer is running power in the roof. So in America, there's a, some countries, you don't run power along the roof except for lights. Yeah. If you start running power sockets in the roof, that breaks the plenum rating and becomes a fire hazard, as yep. I understand. So personally, eh, you know, a whole new 2.5 gig and 5 gig standard just for copper gigabit. Just like, but, but if you multiply them by 10, you have 25 and 50, which is the new data center spec. That's I was wondering if there's a relation there somehow in, no. in the chipsets or if there's some kind of a synergy that's happening. I don't know because the Phi, the, the 25 and 50 gig is built, so the 100 gig Phi is built out of four 25 gig channels, mm -hmm. right? So you take, at 100 gig you've actually got four 25 gig lines and so you mux them together in the SFP. And at the other end, they come in as four 25 gig channels on eight pair, on four pair. Are all the 100 gig Phi's that way? I thought they were 10, or I thought they were... Was it 12 tens in some of the, some in of In the them? early versions, it was 10 tens, and in the later yeah, versions, tens, it was four, two unused, and then it was four 25s. Yeah, and now it's four 25s. So the idea is, is that at 25 gig, you're using one of those. At 50 gig, you're using two of those, and at 100 gig, you're using four of those. Yep. 40 gigabase KR. Well, all the 40 gigabase standards are four by 10, mucks together, so 10, 25. So if you clock it back, yeah, but you're not using one pair for Ethernet. You're using. You've got to increase the clock rate still to get to 2.5 gig and 5 gigahertz yes and you've got to have cat 6e right so it's no longer cat 5 you can't the spectral performance of that copper is so you've still got to go and replace all the copper in your roof well so if why cat, you just replace you, it with you a say cat, cat 6a or, or some kind of a shielded cat 6 or cat 7 something yeah. like that that's a problem that'll stall adoption just yeah. just like that yeah, that'll, that's, that's an expensive adoption rate for yeah. end users if they have yeah. to rip their if whole I read the, plan. if i remember recalling the website correctly and it's end base t.org, it might be nbase-t.org or something like that, but um, go and have a look and it's kind of like you've got to have cat 6 for the for the 2.5 gig and cat 6e for the 5 gig. So you're still going to have to replace the copper anyway. I'm not entirely sure that... Well, cat, cat 6 by itself wouldn't be so bad for the 2.5. If you've got to do fancy cat 6, the thick stuff that's yeah. pricier per foot, that... You know, people are going to look at them and go, I don't know about that. And now you've got toxicity issues because in some places what you put in the roof is... You've got, you're back, we've got to backhaul this to some kind of a switch, though, too. Yeah. So, I mean, they're talking about having to buy you know, a hardware switch to feed APs to feed or whatever. Installing that stuff's expensive, too. You don't mm. just strip it back and clip the connector on. You've actually got to... At CAT6E, you actually have to do a frequency spectrum analysis of the connector to make sure you actually monitor it right. Who's actually signed up for this consortium now, for the NBC? It's just Cisco, right? Well, there's a couple of minor manufacturers of 
chipsets, but that's about it. But like none, none, none of the other big on. players, HP's not in that. No. So, no. so the other side of this is, even if it's developed and it's available, it's going to have to be more than just Cisco supporting it. I mean, well, there's one way to corner a market, Sometimes you've got to put a can of poo down to see if the flies will come. I work with Windows, I guess. Okay. Yeah. You know. So Facebook When we look at the 25 gig standard, right? Arista took that can of poo, dropped it on the table. Google, Facebook. You know, they all gathered around. In other words, the poo worketh. Right? And so the poo becomes fertilizer and then turns into an IEEE standard. 25 meg ATM to the desktop? Yeah. Well, you know, we took that pile of poo. Flies came around and went, not so great. Don't like this poo. Gardening by Greg. So Facebook has published some sort of a data center spec. I haven't had a chance to read this thing yet, but I've seen lots of Twitter activity about it. Have any of you guys looked at it and have an opinion? It's very pretty. I'm trying to think who... Um, someone did a blog post recently. It did a very nice diagram to try and... Jason Edelman. Jason, Jason Edelman. Edelman, okay, yeah. It's worth checking out. He did a really nice attempt to take the crazy 3D, I swear to God, marketing diagrams. They're the ones that got the funding up the chain. Look, it's pretty in 3D. Um, <laughs> I've met the guys... how we were... Are you, I don't think anybody at this table would have drawn it that way. It, it was just... So, so, so my question about this data center architecture is um, Facebook is a real corner case to me. They have very particular needs. They're a very special kind of a thing uh, in what their business is and how they deliver data and so on. So does their data center design impact the rest of us? Do we care? No, it, it doesn't impact us because we're engineers that are grounded in this thing called reality where we know how to build things, but who it impacts is the CIOs that think that Facebook is the end-all, be-all because, hey, my kids are on it, so they must be doing something right. So they're going to come the kids back. have left it, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. They, the adults are on it now. So what's happening is, is that everybody's coming back to my data center should look like Google and Facebook and run SDN and all these other things, when in reality, it's it's a reference architecture. It's it's like the Facebook wedge switch. No, it's actually a, it's a standard three-tier class architecture. So when you build a standard ECMP, then you have another layer of ECMP above it. And what way Facebook wins is they never know where a workload's going to be. The problem that they have is that the east-west traffic is vast. They're running Hadoop clusters, containers, and they don't even know what they're going to run next week. And up until now, they've only ever been able to do top-of-rack, non-blocking. And everything above that was blocking at some level. So, you know, 48 by 10 gig in, 160 gig up, that's a 4 to 1 contention ratio away to the core. That's rubbish can't have 4 to 1 contention ratios in a data center where you're trying to get 99% utilization. And they're doing, if you listen, uh, I listened to a podcast recently with Ahmed Namad, who's the head of Facebook's networking team, and he was basically saying, up until now, they've never had a way of saying non-blocking connectivity between their server, server racks. So they've had to orchestrate their network to put workloads inside a rack. Google's got the same problem so that it could run at wire speed. Because if they start dropping packets in, say, apps like Hadoop or distributed storage systems, they actually go into a race condition where they degrade rapidly. If they have to start resending yeah. the data requests, they degrade, yeah. and then they're sitting there waiting for data to arrive instead of just computing. Yeah. And then you're actually wasting compute cycles because they aren't being burned in the compute so phase, right? They actually just released an article about that where they had a race condition with some, some really ridiculous Facebook graph queries that hit an aggregated link just wrong, yeah. and the race condition degraded the link to the point where it would start dropping thousands of packets because yes. of the latency on it. So, so, so their but their problems exist at a scale that looks kind of alien to us. Well, it does. But the thing that I took away from the design is, if you make your network non-blocking, 
right? So no packets can be dropped anywhere. You don't need to actually build quos. And so now you don't actually need to waste time doing pointless quos configuration. All you need to do is do buffer management to decide how shallow your buffers it, it, need to be. Yeah, it is right? more than that. The buffer management's a really big deal because you've now, you've changed to a non-blocking fabric. You can still have contention issues though. So the buffer management then becomes a thing where if you're gonna not drop packets. So, so my argument to that is if a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass when he hopped. Yes, if I had unlimited bandwidth and unlimited ability to buy equipment to create a non-blocking fabric in my data center, yeah, you're right, I wouldn't need QoS. But you know what? Reality comes into play somewhere and I have to make decisions somewhere where I have to block, where I have to put a, a limit on how much traffic can traverse this north-south link versus east-west. So yeah. I, I look at Facebook's designs as a very interesting academic case in that regard, and there are parts of it that are going to be applicable to networks that I will build in the future, but that that diagram, that pretty little, we spent a whole bunch of marketing and, and 3D modeling, so that will never exist in reality outside of a data center somewhere in California. I, I think the great uh, thing about it is it's actually, <laughs> this is forcing us to have this conversation. Yes. Right, that's... Whether or not I will ever work in a data center that size or deal with those particular challenges, it forces all of us to have the conversation to check our own beliefs, which goes back to your point. I want to learn. I want to figure out, there's stuff that I'm sure I did five years ago that if I went back in time and looked at it, I would slap myself in the head. <laughs> so the answer is I'm working on a network which is today a two-tier two class, that is an ECMP. It's got 12 switches across, and it's going to have 32 across the bottom, 1,510 gig ports. We're now talking it's a unique application, but whatever. We're now talking about how do we get to 3,010 gig ports in two years' time. And that's the design template I'm going to use to get there. I wouldn't have been prepared for that if I hadn't. And I literally walked in there last week and they went, oh yeah, no, we need to go to 3,000 ports. Do you think you have an answer for that? And I'm going, yes, I do. <laughs> Not a good one, you know, I think. Anyway, well, I, you know, proceeded to, but that's where I'd gotten it from, right? So there are times when the unexpected... So is, is sharing this design a pure altruistic move on Facebook's part that just want to give back to the community? Or is there something more sinister going on? Or is this just good PR or what? It's good PR. Uh, they tied up in the Open Compute Project as well, right? So Facebook, one of the big, big folks there. I mean, I think it could be tied to that, at least indirectly. Yeah. Trying to demonstrate it's, their openness. Bit about, well, well, it's, it's, there's a couple well, of things. Open Compute's about defining very specific sets of hardware that can be bought in mass by the pallet load, you know, very cost effectively and meet the needs of all the people that are a part of that. And networking got added to that earlier in the year. And it's, I've been curious to know what are the what are the end products that are going to be produced for OCP that are going to come out of those specifications. And I'm wondering if this is maybe tied to that in some way. Uh, the same with the wedge switch, right? It's like, you're not going to sell the wedge switch. It's not a product. No. Well, you know, and you, I guess, but here's our design. And here's our... Here's what we do. Here's our OS. Here's so how we do it. It's like I'm just trying. I'm trying to work out where they're going with it, or if I'm just being too cynical. So Silicon Valley isn't as rigidly defined as say a normal corporate environment where you're not allowed. To, there's no value to, to Facebook. The network itself isn't the valuable thing. So why not go out and tell people what you're doing if it generates some PR? Whereas our companies might look at their network as a competitive advantage. I look at it and go, meh. Just another network, same as the one right across the road that I did, and the one I did down in the last company I was at. There's, you know, at the end of the day, we're all buying the same components and connecting them in the same way. There's no unique value in the network. Why wouldn't you share that information? So, how much do we know about someone like Google, other than that they have very pretty coloured 
yeah. cooling pipes and stuff. That's just a corporate attitude. They don't see value in sharing the net. And, you know, whereas in Facebook, why not? But and there is in the open compute, that one of the things they're hoping for with their open compute is they want to buy their network hardware and their server hardware cheaper. Mm-hmm. But to do that, they need to change the way server makers are making hardware. They want to go into server motherboards that have no USB ports, for example, right? Well, you know what? In the enterprise, you can pry those USB ports from their cold, dead hands because just might need them. I just might, right? So Facebook said, well, if you were to build this open compute server, we'll buy it. And you know what? Open compute is becoming a thing because enterprise guys go, you know, you can actually shave like $1,000 off the cost of a server if you take out all the chips you don't need. And that's, I got to sit in an open compute project discussion up in New Hampshire where they were having those sorts of conversations right down to how many auxiliary ports am I going to have on this? It was a console manager they were trying to specify. But I put one or two of them on there. Well, it would increase the cost if we put two of them on, but it would give us some redundancy for our control plane traffic. That's the kind of stuff that they're getting to so that it can be agreed upon by the manufacturers and the consumers that mass-produce the thing at the lowest possible cost. The idea would be is that we'd all start buying open compute servers and Facebook's server costs would drop at the same time as production volumes increase. But I agree with you. Not everybody's going to buy a wedge switch because their switch is it doesn't even have a CLI because it doesn't need one. To go back to Chris's point earlier, you were saying we wouldn't have this conversation if they hadn't published that and then give us something to think about. You know, and then, Greg, you made the point, well, yeah, one of the things you get out of the design is if you build a non-blocking fabric, certain problems kind of go away, don't they? Well, we all know that. You can over-provision the network, and that certainly does clear out some issues. I mean, I built uh, a small Nexus network, and when I put the fabric extenders in, I plumbed up all 40 of the 10 gigs to feed 48 1-gig ports. Did I need to do that, build that tiny little bit of oversubscription in and max it out? Nah, I could have gotten away with two 10 gigs. Nah, I didn't need all four. But why not? You know, yeah. the more bandwidth you got uplinking to your core, the better. It's a good thing. It becomes a cost-benefit ratio. If you can do it and it's not that much more money, yeah, well, then you do that. bandwidth will solve a lot of problems. There's not all. calls I didn't want to get from the storage guys or whoever it was because I think the network's slow. And I can go, it is not. <laughs> I wanted to be able to say that categorically. Yeah. Who's got an interesting project that they've been working on? Somebody got something going on at work? What have you been dealing with? Um... Well, I've been messing around with the, the uh, Sprockets code for automation. Which so been... set, set us some background for that. It's Jeremy so, Shulman's company. Right, this is Jeremy Shulman, who was the uh, what, director of automation at Juniper, yeah. who left in this summer to uh, create a startup called Sprockets, uh, which is indeed named after the Saturday Night Live sketch. Um, and basically, he's trying to take, I guess, extend on the work he did with uh, things like his Ruby API and the Junos Pi EZ and go to the next step of uh, generic automation of anything. Uh, anything yeah, and, and one of the so, early use cases he had described to me was, I want to stand up a data center from scratch. I've got all this equipment to deploy. How do I automate that process? That's yeah. One example. Yeah, yeah he's, he's done some, you know, some simple examples of, you, know, you want to build an a, uh, a VPN between AWS and uh, uh, Juniper SRX in your premise. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty simple script to put together this little workbook and say, right, go off, go push this off and make it do it. Um, he's building everything to be item potent, so you know, you do it twice, it doesn't matter, it won't make a second change. Um, 
everything's confirmed. You, you, know, you can then go undo your changes. And it's it's been a very interesting little project because it's hiding all of the back end crap about. It's another abstraction of an abstraction, right? Hmm. It's hiding all the back end stuff about. We don't care if it's doing uh, netconf with XML RPC or if it's doing a REST API. This stuff's hidden away from you in the connector magic. Um, but but the, it exposes methods to you to go and. So the, the, the Sprockets kit does, you mean? Yeah. In other words, so now you've got a standard way to configure a multitude of different kinds of hardware. Within reason. Yeah, so where something can be consistent across multiple vendors it is, but obviously there's a, there's a fair amount of vendor-specific requirements in there. But I, I can do things like, you know, I can, I can add a firewall rule to a Juniper SRX, um, or rather Sprockets can do that for me based on a config file and a workbook. And once you've built the workbook with variables in, I can now start feeding those variables in dynamically. There will be an API ultimately because we need to have APIs to our abstractions of our abstractions. It sounds a bit like Ansible. So I actually got to take in Jeremy's um, session at Interop, and it's a lot of it is based on what he learned from Ansible and, yeah. and working with Puppet and Chef. But where those things fall down, and this is, I can't wait to get my hands on it and, and play. I'm, I'm really... Jeremy, if you're listening, get in contact. I'm nerding out. <laughs> oh, no. We've, we've been going back and forth. Um, Thanksgiving gets in the way. Um, but I, I'm excited to see, you know, the question for me fundamentally was, okay, what about those platforms made it ill-suited for networking, right? And, and he worked with those guys a lot on playing, and, and Edelman's the, the been doing Ansible some guys. great work from Ansible as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, right, you can yeah. push it so far, but at what point do server tools created by server people for server people... Yeah, and Ansible has said that they're not... They don't really want to get into the networking space. They, it's not what they're best at. Absolutely, so. and that's fine. And I just want to see, okay, what does he see as someone who, who's got that foot in both worlds? And what is he doing with the platform that's going to make it better suited from a networking environment when servers generally we're dealing with one? We're dealing with distributed systems. We're dealing with things that, I love this term, he uses the blast radius because I've seen so it's many networks explode, right? He's got, I'm like, that's a great way to look at it. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's still very early, but it's looking like very interesting. And most importantly, as as a network guy, not a DevOps guy, um, coding. Well, there isn't any. You're not. You know, with the Junos PyEZ stuff, you were still writing Python. This is again an abstracted one layer beyond that. You're writing stuff in YAML. So your workbooks and everything are in YAML. Your data files are in YAML. So uh, and, yeah, and YAML is a fairly touch word, fairly easy format. It's easy to screw up. It's if very careful, readable. But it's very human readable, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it makes reading workbooks and data sets pretty simple. And there is a surprising amount of automation within the workbooks. A lot of, you, know, you have the ability to do variables, conditionals, deal with lists of information, iterate over them, and this kind of thing, all as part of your work. So uh, definitely a space to watch. And there's, a, there's a small group of us um, doing testing right now. And um, so the other guys doing the testing outclassed me by a factor of 100, um, which makes it even more fascinating to be in that group with them and hear what they're doing and what they're bumping up against. So, uh, And uh, Jeremy's taking a lot of that feedback and building it right back into the product. So, so to translate this into, a, as, as Sprockets matures, what do you think you're going to be doing with it? Or what, or what do you envision you could be doing with it that would be useful day to day? Anything you do regularly. I mean, it, you, you could do anything from, as, like you said, from you could deploy something from scratch, here's a template for my data center, go do it. So, because it's item potent, you can do it like Puppet, right? I, I add something to the config file, I run it again. 
99% of it makes no change, that 1% I change now gets pushed out. So it could, it could actually be your configuration file for the network could be a, a data file for sprockets, rather than worrying about editing the config so itself. The, you could take it back. The exciting use case that I've been hearing them talk about, and, and Jason, I, th I think he presented on this as well, is more Jason of... Jason Edelman? Jason Edelman at yeah. Edelman is more of, of, I think they described it as checking the ephemeral state of the network in a given point in time, and drawing back, so translated into English, when we have a problem, and what we do in our head is we go, okay, I'm going to log into the box, I'm going to do, okay, show IP brief, okay, I'm going to do show SPF, show SPF neighbors, show SPF neighbors for this particular interface, I'm going to grep, I'm going to do all this stuff. And it's always the same things that we go through. And I'm going to do it on 19 boxes till I figure out why this one particular box that got elected as my DR in an OSPF instance isn't peering with everything else. And then find out that, oh, somebody changed the MTU size. Uh. And so it's going out to all of these boxes and logging in through whatever fashion it has, whether hopefully it's not expect, but depends what you got, right, based on, on their back end. You know, if, if it's using a RESTful API, is it using some other method? Pulling all that data back, parsing it out automatically for you, and doing all those comparisons to go back to your CCIE troubleshooting book. These are the seven things you must look for. Is your neighbor the same area, stub flags? Yeah. And I don't have to remember that stuff, and it goes, wrong. Yeah, and, and I think um, I think it's Matt Ellswell, I may, it may be Jason, but I think it was Matt, who's using Sprockets to go query UCS, Cisco UCS, to go and get a bunch of information back that he can then feed back into other network equipment to support the UCS deployment. So he's getting real-time live data latest from that system that he can then bang straight out into the network. Um, so again, it has that interactivity, it has that ability to sequence things. So, um, I just like that I don't have to program in a language. Mm. <laughs> it is very um, childishly exciting to write a workbook in YAML, watch it go, and configure five things, and come back and go, did it. It's like, woohoo. <laughs> it's, well, it's sad, but it makes me happy. <laughs> well, based on our time and the fact that we're going to get ushered out of this area before too long, we've been told, we should wrap up this Packet Pushers podcast, special edition from HP, Discover Barcelona, blah, blah with uh, all these awesome people. So let's go around the table one more time and uh, have these awesome people tell you how you can follow them on the internet, starting with John. Uh, Mr. Tugs on Twitter and lanejournal.com where I write stuff. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as at Networking Nerd. You can visit my website at networkingnerd.net. And if you'd like to check out the awesome day job that I have, you can head over to techfieldday.com. Absolutely. Tons of fantastic content at techfieldday.com. I am Amy Engineer on Twitter, and you can find my blog at amyengineer.com. At NetmanChris on Twitter and controlissues.net with the K. And I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on my blog at ethereumind.com and on the Twitter is at ethereumind. And I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks at ethancbanks.com. And this has been the Packet Pushers podcast. Packetpushers.net is home to our community blog where engineers from all over the world uh, blog and share their war stories and uh, what's going on in real life as they work on their networks. And of course, home to the Packet Pushers podcast where you can find this show and many, 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 many others going back four years now. All of our content that we've ever recorded is up there available for free. And, uh, and please stop by. If you have questions about this show or just want to tell us anything that's on your mind, packetpushers at gmail.com. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>